I, I'm not responsible for that. Uh, I was forced to do that. There, there's a reason why you do not see me doing a lot of those video announcements like that, because I'm not really good at it. I just have to put that out there to you. That's just kind of the way it is. Uh, but we want to invite you that Sunday with us as we do our first family service together, and we're excited about that, and, and you'll hear more about that as we progress through the month. Good morning. It's great to see you today, fifth week in the book of James together. If you have your Bible, turn to the book of James chapter 2. We will start at verse 14 here in just a moment. But before we do that, maybe you don't know anyone that's around you or you're just kind of here for the first time or whatever. If you turn to someone around you and say good morning to them, if you'd like to do that, uh, feel free to shake their hand. Uh, You might not want to hug them unless you know them, you know, that might really freak them out if you do that. But, it, but, you know, this is church. You have to do the sideways hug, so make sure you do that. Keep everything, like, above board today. And so we are really glad that you are here today. Faith and works. Boy, of the, all of the teachings in the book of James, um, this is the one that I have both looked forward to so much and also I have somewhat dreaded because it is a very tough subject to cover. And so what we have discovered thus far through this book is, well, a number of things. First, is James is an invitation to a better life, that it, it really is calling us to something better. We likened it last week to that of a loving father when he says to us, don't do this or do that, that it's an invitation. It's an invitation to something better in our life. It's not that God is flexing his authority, and if God wanted to do that, then who are we to stop God? Because he is God, right? But yet, it's not that God is just flexing his authority over us, but yet it is an invitation from him. And so there's a couple of ways when you read the book of James, as we've done over the years, I think, personally and also in teachings, that you can see it. One, you can see there's this five-chapter therapeutic session about behavioral alterations in your life. And just as saying that if I just behave better somehow, that things are better between God and I, and that's not what this is about Because James really cuts right to the heart of the matter, and that is our heart. That is our heart and and what is inside of us. And you can also see it as an opportunity for to be really laden by guilt and saying, there's no way that I can match up to all of this because I am not perfect. And what you just said about I'm not perfect is perfect as far as it comes to the book of James, because James is about progress in our life, and it's not really about perfection. Progress, but not perfection. So James's query, James's question as he poses it to us every week is this, is my faith genuine? It's a way to take a pause, to take a moment in our spiritual journey and say and ask us this question, is our faith genuine? And what does genuine faith look like? Genuine faith is not perfection. Realize that it's not, it's not perfection, but it's that I'm struggling with these areas in my life that I should be struggling in, that I'm progressing in God and I'm moving along and I'm moving from A to B, that I'm becoming the person that God has designed me to me to come. And that is very messy and that is very inconsistent in all of our lives, but it's about progress. That is what genuine faith looks like. And that progress comes by a couple of things that we have learned thus far. First is this, a deeper understanding, a deeper understanding of simply who God is, the nature and the character of God, that God is for us, not against us, because James says it is not God that tempts us to sin. So God is for us. God is never, ever against us. Also, we understand that progress is through a deeper understanding of how God sees us, that he sees us as the first fruits of his creatures. 
and that is that you and I are a down payment of the redemptive work of Christ. And that is a powerful thing to understand because change in our life is not brought about by a list of rules and regulations. That has never changed any of us. In fact, sometimes we resist that greatly. But what changes us is the beauty, the vision that we get of what we are to become. That is exactly what this is all about. And it's the beauty of that that brings change in our life. And the third thing about progress we have understood is that it's the power of the gospel to transform our lives. That we have to be more than hearers, but we also must be doers of the word. It's not just enough to come here every week and sit in here and hear, but we must embrace the word of God, apply it to our lives. Hear what James says, hey, don't forget. Don't just hear and forget. And we know through our study that word forget means to discard. Don't just hear the word of God and discard it as if it doesn't apply to you because it is a letter written to the church to you and I. So as I thought about what to cover and what to say and what I really would want God to accomplish in our lives, that my prayer was that God would do this amazing and profound work in all of my, our lives, including myself this morning, that enables us to feel and to somehow intellectually know uh, God in a way that leads us to delight in our life, because I believe, truly believe it's the delight of the Lord that drives our life, and it drives the discipline of our lives. It's not some cold, lifeless list of rules that leads to some dry orthodoxy in all of our lives. It's not that at all, but that we might see and savor Jesus through the book of James this morning, that we might rest in that delight and that peace that we are fully forgiven. Understand that, that you are fully forgiven this morning, that you are loved, that God even likes you. I don't know if you ever thought about that or not, right? Yeah, you know, we say that about people, you know, I love them, but I really don't like them. Guess what? God actually likes you. And that is, I think, to me, amazing in the way that I act sometimes because it's by faith alone. So regardless of however you have drugged yourself in this morning, regardless of whatever your week has been like, that you delight in the fact that he loves the messy, the goofy, the sometimes ignorant, pardon me, you know, no offense, you know, intended about that, but he loves the messy and the goofy and the sometimes ignorant version of you and I, and he's not in love with some future perfected version of us. That he loves us. And we delight in that. And out of that delight drives the spiritual discipline of our lives. That I pray that we would leave here unburdened by this somewhat continual pressure that we feel within our lives to somehow perform for God. That we understand as we leave here this morning that the performance has already been given. And that performance was given through that of the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ today. That understand that his righteousness has been imputed to you and I. So that when God sees us, God sees us through the perfection of his son. So I'm not always worried about being perfect every day and afraid that I'm going to somehow stumble or mess up or fail because I will do that as a human being. But what I realize is that I am beloved by him and I delight in who I belong to. And that delight drives all of the obedience toward God in my life, not rules. Not regulations, not works, not all those kinds of things. So how do I get to that kind of delight in God? How do I get there? Oh, James gets us there. That's why we are in the book of James, because he gets us there. That journey that we're about to take together this morning, 
This journey, starting at verse 14, going all the way to verse 26, it's perhaps known theologically as some of the most difficult passages that you will all find in the Scriptures anywhere. And perhaps the most argued and the most misunderstood, that relation of faith and works. And so, I have felt the pressure all week of simply bringing this teaching to you this morning. I told the staff in our, our weekend meeting, which we do every Friday morning at uh, 10 or 10.30, I told them that I really feel the pressure this week because it's such a pertinent topic for us to talk about because it's something that we all wrestle with. And so yet the reality is you can't separate faith and works, but yet we feel like that once you get them really close together, it's also very dangerous at times in our lives. And so James helps us in that delight, being us delighting in who we are in God that drives that obedience and that discipline in our lives. So here's James' argument. Here it is, that while faith alone saves us, and we know that and understand that before we go any further, that while faith alone saves us, it's a faith of a certain kind. It is a faith of a certain kind. It's a faith, uh, that faith which produces works, that that is what saves us. It's not that we are saved by those works, but it's a faith that produces works within our lives. Works do not save us, but a faith that does not produce works is actually very deceiving because it will make us think something of ourselves that we are not. And some of you are there today. Yes. Because you have that faith and you have that knowledge, but yet that faith in your life is not producing those works. And we're going to define faith and works in a moment so you have a real good working knowledge of what that is. But that kind of, that kind of relationship with God is very deceiving because it makes you think that you're something that you are not because it does not lead you into the fullness of God where God wants you today. Faith without works, what he says in our outline this morning, is useless. Faith without works, James says, is useless. It cannot save us. It is ineffective. And then he finally just draw, you know, hammers the nail in and he says that faith without works is dead. Yes, it's a very powerful thing. So let me tell you what he's not arguing so you don't get this locked in your brain before we go any further. James is not arguing that, that works must be added to your faith. That's not the argument here this morning. Understand that. Because if that is the argument then the cross of Christ is meaningless. Realize that, okay? Before we go any further, that you lock that in your mind, that the argument is not that works must be added to your faith. That is not the argument because that would simply nullify the work of the cross. No, the gospel is not a door that we walk through and we're saved and somehow we forget the works of Christ in our life and his righteousness being imputed to us and we start this journey of trying to work out our own lives and our own problems and trying to clean our own life up. That is not the gospel, but the gospel is that that saves us and sanctifies us and that simply holds us to the very end. James is not saying now that we have faith, let's get to work on our works. That's not what he's saying at all. Because if that was what he was be saying this morning, then we become enslaved to the law. And we know what the scripture says about that, that we're, not no, longer, we're no longer slaves to the law, that we become enslaved to that of the law, the law that we could never keep. It's like the Ten Commandments, you know? You always say, we've said this so many times in teachings together on Sunday mornings, that the Ten Commandments, one of the reasons it is given, and they are commandments, understand that, but they're given to simply push us to a righteousness outside of our own righteousness, that they're to remind us that it's not us, and we can't fix ourselves, and we can't make everything right with 
in our life, that we need a power greater than outside of us. And the Ten Commandments always push us to God. You see, God is not up there going, it's like a test. You know, hey, today, on this day, you made a zero out of ten. You failed the test, okay? So I really want you to do better and try again tomorrow and do better. Maybe you get three out of ten tomorrow. Maybe you will do better than that. You know, we often call God God of that God is a God of do-overs, like, like we would say, God, you know, we fail that to this week, we fail that test of the Ten Commandments, so God's going to give you another chance so you can make a better grade in this test, so you're going to feel so much better about yourself. And can I tell you, in light of that, God is really not that concerned about your self-esteem and to what grades you make on the commandment test. It is not that at all. Because if it was like that, and God's keeping score we would be in trouble, would we not? We would be in serious trouble, absolutely. So that is not what this is about. It points us to a righteousness outside of our own self-righteousness. It is that we have to have something greater than our own. James is not arguing with us this morning that works must be added to faith, but this, that genuine biblical faith will eventually be characterized by works. Genuine biblical faith will be eventually characterized by works in our life. That is exactly what this is about. So what faith is, can I define that for you as a working definition through this teaching this morning? You need to know, and it's this, what faith is, faith trusts and obeys God. Faith trusts and obeys. If you're going to write notes, write that down, that faith trusts and obeys God. If it doesn't trust God, if it doesn't seek to obey God in the imperfection of how we approach life as humans, it's very messy and inconsistent. But if it doesn't trust God and if it doesn't seek to obey God imperfectly, then it's, it, James says, hey, then your faith, it's dead. It's not faith at all is exactly what he said, because this is about progress and not perfection, that I'm struggling with those things in my life. So faith is trust and obeying God. But what is works? That's the one that we struggle with, I think. So, so what is works? Is James talking about the law? Is he talking about me getting 7 out of 10 of the commandments every day and that's a passing grade with God? Is, is that what he's talking about? But I think in order to understand works, you have to go back to James chapter 1 because James talks about the royal law. What is the royal law? And that is that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and your mind. And what is the other part? And you love your neighbor, what? As yourself. That is it. works is a life of what? Loving God and loving others. That is wonderful. That, that's amazing. In fact, isn't that's part of our vision statement at Hope Fellowship, that that is what we are about. So works is a life of loving God and loving others, that God's looking for progress and not perfection. Because when I look at if works is that of loving God and loving others, then no one in this room is going to perfectly love God and perfectly love others. None of us are going to perfectly love God and perfectly love others. So we've said good morning to one another. Let's really break the ice for a moment. Will you, okay? Here, we're going to take a little survey. All right? And, and, and here, here, is the, here is the survey. How many of you failed? Now listen to me before you raise your hand. Don't get, don't get all spunky on me yet. How many of you failed? You failed this week in perfectly loving God and loving others. Let me see your hand if you fail this week somehow. Okay, keep them up. Don't put them down. Keep them up. It's just good for you. Look around the room. Look around the room. Good. 
Put your hands down. Now, those of you that didn't raise your hand, okay, then you're liars, okay? Understand that. And you've just broke one of the commandments. So now you can raise your hand all by yourself. Isn't that wonderful? Yes. That we have, we have kind of leveled the ground as we say in this room. Yes, I love that because none of us perfectly do that. So I want to put that out there so you don't feel like this is some drive-by guilting this morning on your life and you already feel the pressure of all of this. I want you to feel some pressure to change and to be challenged. Absolutely, that's what the Word of God does in our life. But works is that of loving God and loving others. None of us are perfect in that. That's why Jesus came. He covered us with his blood that he shed upon the cross. That we now are covered by his righteousness. So that when the Father sees you and I, he sees us through the perfection of his Son. And in that I delight. And in that delight, that drives my discipline in him. That drives my obedience in him. That drives my love for you. Understand that because sometimes, sometimes some of you are very difficult to love. You know I'm saying the truth, right? You, you know it's true. Absolutely. Yes, don't look at me like I have no idea who you're talking about in this room. No, yes. So the argument, the argument must never be that you add works to your faith to validate your faith. That's not what this is about. But legitimate faith leads to an outgoing love for God and a love for others. Isn't that simple? Yes. It takes a very very difficult passage of Scripture, and it somewhat makes it simple until until we dig more into what we're going to talk about this morning. So there's a couple of thoughts. Here they are. First is this. Faith without works is useless. Because if you say that you have faith and you trust God and you're, uh, you're, you're, you're going to obey God and your life is going to be marked by loving other people, if you say that you have faith, understand that, and if you say that you're trusting God and you're going to obey God, then your life is marked by loving God and loving people. And if there is no movement in your faith toward loving God more and loving people more, if there's no movement in your faith like that, Then here's what James says. James says, your faith is useless. Is exactly what he says. Look at verse 15. If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. This is the way he kind of fleshes this out in an illustration for us. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, understand now what's not being said. He's not saying that the brother that comes to you is like lacking in fashion. It's not saying that he's wearing like knockoff polo shirts. It doesn't have the little horse and the guy on it, you know, but they come from somewhere else and they paid a lot less than everybody else might, someone else might pay. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying this, that if a brother in your faith community comes to you and they are naked and they haven't eaten yet, then this is how you're going to respond. Look what he says. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? What? Because what he's saying is faith without works is absolutely useless. Because where there is perceived faith with no works, then it's useless. Because what happens here, and there's a, two, there's a double-edged sword, because it, it, it affects not only the one that's in need, but it affects the one that has the resources. resources. 
Because the poor, man, they receive a blessing from God when they're blessed by others and they know that they're encouraged and they're loved by God. And the one that has the resources, then what they miss, they miss the opportunity to be used by God in a very profound way to help those that are hurting in their community. And I think it really comes back to this. Do we understand this morning? Do we really understand this morning why God has blessed us? Oh, I know why God has blessed me. God has blessed me so that I can have, like, buy a, sell the house I have, get a bigger house, because I need a bigger house. And, and, I, and I have a car, which is a really great car, but I need a better car, you know? I need a car with, like, all those things that tells me that I'm about to run over somebody on my left, about to run over somebody on my right. It screams at me. The steering wheel shakes like this, and it, and it, it wakes me up and all those kinds of things. I need one of those cars, and I need more in my 401k and all this. And I want to tell you, those things are not bad within themselves, but those are not the primary reasons that God blesses us. God blesses us, and I think Matthew said this earlier, so that we live open-handedly. That we live open-handedly. Understand that. That that is the reason that God has blessed us. Because if we lived, I think if we don't live open-handedly, but we live with a clenched fist with all the things that God has blessed with and all the resources, I think what that shows is this. It shows that we are enslaved to those blessings and we're not grateful for what God has given us. Because we show our gratefulness to God through our generosity toward others. Yes. But when faith in our life becomes static, when it's not moving, when faith is not moving in our life, we tend to become spiritually constipated. Think about that for a moment. I just want to throw that out there to you to give it a little thought, you know? Do I need to expound any more on that topic? No, I don't think so. Because you've got it. You, you understand exactly what I'm saying. Yes. <laughs> James is saying. Somebody said preach. I don't know if we want to preach on that, but here's the thing. James is saying, hey, hey, he, this guy comes to you and they're naked. It's not that they're just lacking in fashion and style. They're naked and they're hungry. And James says, here's what you say to them, because this makes no sense, right? James says, hey, hey, God bless you, brother, in your nakedness. You're not going to survive the day most likely. And I really felt like God is directing me to say that to you, you know, that you're not going to survive. So here's my advice to you. Here's my advice to you as a Christian brother. Go get something to eat and put your drawers on. That's exactly what my advice to you is. Now, those of you that are not Southerners, you don't know what drawers are, right? Yes. Drawers are not where you put your clothes. Drawers are what you put on before you put your clothes on. And so here's what he says. He says, go get your drawers on and get something to eat. And oh, by the way, God bless you and Harley, have a great day. What good is that? Because that simply is trouble when there's a lack of faith that everything breaks down. It breaks down for the person that's supposed to receive because it doesn't show them how gracious and merciful God is. It breaks down for the person that has the resources to give because you're not grateful. You're not expressing your gratefulness and thankfulness to God in your life. It totally breaks down everything within our life because faith without works is useless. It's useless. James, remember we said this, is a commentary of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5 through 7, 
We said when you read the book of James, look or listen for the echoes of Jesus' words. And, and maybe this not being Sermon on the Mount or whatever, but yet we find really some echoes of Jesus' words from the book of Matthew 25 and 40 and 43. You can read that later, but it's where he separates the sheep from the goat. And, and he says, hey, you know what, guys? When, when, I was, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. And I was thirsty, you didn't give me any drink. And when I was a stranger, you didn't come to me. And I was naked, you didn't clothe me. You sick in, in prison, and you didn't come and visit me. Because what is works in our life? If faith, if faith is simply that of trusting and obeying God, and that faith produces those works, then we go back to what James says, and, and works is simply me loving God with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and my neighbor as myself. And when that breaks down, faith is useless. Your faith is useless if that's not the works that is coming out of the faith in your life. Yes. But when we experience the grace and the mercy of God, we rest in that saving faith alone. We do. And our hearts are transformed. And so our love for God begins to be translated in our love for others. That is important. And we struggle with that progress sometimes in our lives. We do. We struggle. I said earlier, sometimes people are hard to love, and they really are very difficult to love at times. And, 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 and I, I really want us to understand that. It's, it's hard, but it's not a love for people that makes us love God, but rather a love for God that translates into our love for people. Yeah. I'm not going to go out and feed the poor thinking that that's going to help me love God more. That's not, that's not what he's talking about at all. But yet that because of my love for God, that when my brother comes to me and he's hungry and naked, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to give him advice about going and getting some food and finding some drawers to put on. That's not what I'm going to say to him. What am I, I going to do? Because my faith is translated in my love for God and a love for others, and I'm going to love him by clothing him and feeding him and providing for him and taking care of him and his family. So faith without works is useless. The second thing is this, faith without works cannot save us. This is the tough one, all right? This is the one I've dreaded. Here it is. I have to go. We're preaching through James, so I can't skip these verses. So faith without works cannot save us. So James 2, verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So what James does here is he, he, he interjects an antagonist is what he does. He, we don't know who this person is. We know that he's writing this letter to the church. So he injects an antagonist in the letter. And, and it's, it, what he says is this. Let's just, you know, if he's passive aggressive, if James was, he would say, well, let's just say now, hypothetically, you know, there's this brother that I possibly could know. You know, I'm not saying he is or he isn't, but I possibly could know that there's this guy who says faith and works are two separate things. And they should never be brought together. They're dangerous when you put them together. And that's the form of his argument, that you have faith and I have works. And he goes on to say this, listen, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one, you do well. I love what he says here. Even, even the demons believe and shudder. I love that. Do you, do you want to be shown, you foolish man, that faith apart from works is useless? Verse 21 was not, and he begins to give us a couple of examples of faith and works. 
He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active uh, along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. James, the antagonist, he's introducing into this argument faith and works. And are they separate? Are they two different things? And can you put the two together? And is it dangerous to do that when you put the two together? And here's James's argument against them being separate. The first is this. Show me your faith without your works is what he says. Show me your faith is without your works. So I brought something to illustrate this. I brought a chair from our house. This chair is over 100 years old. It is. And uh, it, we've had it oh, not 100 years, okay? So we haven't had it. And we bought it at a, uh, uh, a shop, and they told us it was that old. So we're just living in that uh, delusion that it's that old, okay? So let us live there. <clears throat> and so it's cre- it, it creaks, and it moves a little bit. It's pegged together, you know, like that. So we, we think it's that old. And, and this kind of chair, if I invite you to my house and I pull this out and it kind of creaks and it, and it wobbles a little bit, and I say, here, have a seat, make yourself comfortable. Well, you're going to wonder, you know, because it does take some faith to sit in a chair, right? Because what is your first question if you're going to sit in this chair? What is your question? Is it going to hold me? Is exactly right. Is this chair going to hold me? Because I don't know. It, it seems to be a little shaky, you know, but... When I bring this chair out, oh, that's a different story. Because why? Because you can see the construction. It's made of steel. And is that chair going to? Well, here's James's argument. He, he, this, this guy that he's talking to, whoever this personality is, he says, hey, why don't you have a seat in the chair is what he says to the guy. And the guy says, you know, no, I don't know. I just kind of want to look at the chair and check it out for a moment. And then James says to him, hey, don't you believe that the chair will hold you? And the guy says back to him, well, yeah, I believe that chair will hold, you, hold me because it's made out of steel. Look at the construction of this thing. It's absolutely going to hold me. And so James says, hey, well, then have a seat in the chair. And the guy says, well, you know, I don't know. I believe it will hold me. But man, you know, I have a history with some chairs in the past and I'm kind of jaded by them and I'm not real sure. I know that will hold me, but I'm real, can I just kind of have this conversation with you without absolutely sitting in the chair? I really believe they will hold me, but I'm not sure I want to sit down. And that's exactly James' argument. It is. Because James says, hey, your faith, apart from your works, is dead. So sit in the chair, you know? <laughs> in, my, in my view of all of this, James just gets louder and louder as this guy give, continues to give his objections. He's believing the chair will hold him, but he will never put his little tushy in it. Yeah. And so it is the point that James makes with you and I this morning is this, that faith apart from from our works 
that faith is that of obeying and trusting God, the works is that of loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. that simply that we know that and we know a whole, but at some point you simply have to put works with that and you have to sit in the chair, right? So the second thing that James addresses is that of the intellectual assent to correct doctrine is not salvation, he says, you know, I intellectually meant to believe in all the doctrine, the truth about Jesus and who he is and the personal work of Christ. I believe in the physics of the chair. I'm looking at how it is constructed. This thing is not nailed or glued together. It is welded together, and it's welded very well. So this is, and it's made of steel. So I have no doubt that this is going to structurally be sound, and it's going to hold me. But I don't ever have to sit in the chair. I just have to know that the chair will hold me, and that's enough. And James drives this argument home with us, and he says, yeah, you believe God is one. He says that, so big deal. The demons believe all of that too. But at some point, you have to sit in the chair. Now he's getting angry, you know. At some point, you have to sit down. That intellectual ascent, just knowing a correct doctrine, just knowing who Christ is, and knowing all the works of Christ is not going to be enough. It's not. This is, he's talking to the brother that knows a lot of scripture and he knows the Bible and he uses the Bible to sort of beat people up with that. He has a crusty and a dry heart. He uses the scripture to, dis, to beat people into submission in their life. And his pride is found in how much he knows. There's no real love for God. There's no real love for people. And if you are here, I hope that speaks to you because understand this, you may be very smart, but at some point your smartness is going to betray you. It's more than just knowing that some point you move past that faith of just understanding things to that moment where you sit. Where are you? Where are you in all of that conversation? And then the last thing he says is this, that faith alone saves you but not faith that is alone. And James uses two illustrations. First is Abraham. And I love when you say Father Abraham, where does your mind go if you were raised in church? Father Abraham had many sons. You know, yeah, I sing, and you say, Mark, don't do that because that's a mind worm. You remember we talked about those before. It gets in your brain. You can't get it out and you have to replace it with something else. And so we, so we think of Father Abraham, many sons, many sons. And then he talks about Rahab the prostitute. There are no Sunday school songs for Rahab the prostitute. That I don't understand and I disagree with. So I am going to instruct Nathan, our children's pastor, to teach your preschoolers a Sunday school song about Rahab the prostitute so they come home and sing for you. Oh, Lord, help us. Because she is such a beautiful part, a beautiful part, of our spiritual life, are the lineage of our salvation. Can I talk about Abraham for a minute and then we talk about Rahab for just a second? 
Abraham revealed that he trusted God by sitting in the chair. He did, yes. God comes to Abraham and says, hey, I'm going to make you a father of, of, of a great nation, and that great nation is going to bless all the nations of the earth. And Abraham is looking around saying, I don't have any kids. You know, something is really jacked up here. <laughs> Lord, have you looked in the back of the station wagon? There are no kids back there, okay? So understand that. There's maybe a car seat, but, you know, there's nobody in that thing yet. Yet God sends Isaac in his old age and then what does God do? Well, here, here, comes this, here comes this test for Abraham and his faith. Then God commands him, hey, take the fulfillment of the promise, Isaac. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to saddle up the donkey. I want you to get some wood. I want you to get some cords. Sharpen up the knife. I want you to take Isaac up on the mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him on an altar to me. And what Abraham does, Abraham sets in a chair with with trepidation. He does. He sits in the chair with great trepidation because he's a man. He's a father. He loves his child. So he sits in the chair with trepidation and with trust and with hope. And he places Isaac on the altar. God causes the ram to be caught in a bush near the altar. And he takes the ram. He sacrifices in the place of Isaac. And he calls that place the Lord will provide. At some point in your life, you have to move beyond just knowing God and knowing all the things about God are going out trying to work your way to God or thinking that the more you do in this life, somehow it's going to cause you to love God more. And what you have to realize is this, that it all starts with your faith, that trusting, obeying, and out of that faith comes your works. And that is that you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself, and you set your rear end in the chair. You sit. Because your faith without your works is dead. Does that make sense to you this morning? Because it's a very confusing thing for a lot of people. But then he comes to Rahab, the prostitute. She's a prostitute in the city of Jericho, this mighty city. And so what what happens there is that that we know that, that the spies are sent in. Joshua sends the spies in to that, that city, and Rahab hears they're coming, hears, hears of them coming. Now, she's a prostitute. Can I, and, and I have to frame this well before we move on, and that is that no little girl grows up in her life dreaming to be a prostitute. No, she's a prostitute because she is misused, and she is abused, and, and it, it's a deplorable place to be in life because something wicked and horrible has probably happened in her life, and that's where she is. Women were mistreated in that culture, treated like cattle, and I can't imagine if women were treated like cattle, much less what a prostitute was treated like in that culture. But yet she knows that the, the children of God are coming. She hides the spies away from the guards and away from the authorities. She takes her life into her very own hands by doing that. But she understands that they have the ability to bring something new and a change to her life and, and something better. It's an invitation to something better. It goes back to the heart of the book of James. That's why James uses is Rahab, I believe, in all of this. And she takes that step and she sits in the chair. She sits in the chair. And some of you are saying, okay, Mark, give me the list of things I have to do. Give me the list and I will just do them because I want this relationship with God and I want, I want these things that you're talking about. So give me the list. No, it's not a list. Understand that. It's not a list. 
That these things in your life, these works in your life are now working of the faith that you have, the trust and obedience you have in God and the delight that you have in God. They come out of that. So it's not a list. What does Rahab do? She hides them. She hides them. Yes. And she finds herself in the lineage of the Savior. If you read the book of Matthew, isn't that amazing? Yes. That Rahab is in our family tree. Isn't that wonderful? I love that thought. That's why there should be a song about her for our kids. Yes. That she's there because she sits in the chair. Faith without works, faith without works cannot save you. And we go to that word works. You can play a while. But you're going to play a while. Okay, so understand it. But play. Go ahead. Go ahead. Do it. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> I still have two more points, girl. Well, you know, we're, just, we're going to camp out here. Uh, and I knew I would never get finished with this. I knew that from the beginning. I told myself last night, but I had to give it a try, you know. And we come to that word works in our lives and some of you are sitting there and you're saying, you know, I'm a Christian. I want to say this in love to you. As your pastor, as a minister, I want to say this to you as a child of God. That you sit there and you say, I'm a Christian. But in your life, there's no love for God. And that love does not lead you to love others as imperfectly as we do that. But that's, that's not there. Can I tell you, if you're saying that you're a Christian, but there's no love for God in your life, that leads to a very imperfect love for everybody else around you, then please Stop calling yourself a Christian. Stop. For some of us who have grown up in the church, we know all the spiritual jargon. We know all of those kinds of things. We, we know how to meet the, the behavioral expectations of the church. We, we, we know how to play the part. But do we have a heart for Jesus that drives us to love others as ourselves? Because that's faith and that's works. Do we? Faith without works is ineffective. All the vows and the Thou shalt not, and all those thou shalt, and all those kinds of things are nothing but invitations into a better life from God. Because God has never been about robbing you of anything. Never. It's an invitation to sit in the chair this morning. Growing up, my boys, you know, they, you, you had to convince them when they were little guys, you had to convince them that the pool was a lot of fun, you know, to get in the, get in the shallow wind, kind of wait around a little bit, go to the kiddie pool, but as dad's, and moms, I'm sure that that's what we would, here's what we would do. We would, we would stand them on the edge of the pool. You know, the little guy standing there and he's got his hands like this and he's shaking. And then we would get in the water and we would stand away from the edge of the water. And then what would we say to them? Jump. And they would look at us like, you crazy. You know, I, I, know, I know the drill. You're going to drown me. I know this is the plan. And you've never done anything to harm them. Boy, there's a lot of parallels there isn't there in our lives 
with our relationship with God. And so as a father, they go, the, you know, they look at me like, no, not going to happen. And what would I do? I'd get a little closer to the edge. No, not close enough. Get a little closer. And then after a while, I'm actually bumping up against the edge, and they're right there in front of me, you know? So what do you do? You reach out and you grab them. You bring them close to you. And you take them out in the water. They have a kung fu grip on you that nobody could break, right? Yes? Yeah? And you kind of begin to submerge them a little by little in the water with yourself. Jesus is saying to us this morning, jump to me. Trust me. Trust me. You know about me. Yeah. You can even quote some of my words, he would say to you. But you're never going to really know the joy of the water and swimming and the refreshing in the middle of the summer of a cool swim. Until you move from the edge to the water. So jump to me. I believe the Lord is saying that to some of you in this room this morning. Because he meets us right where we are in our spiritual journey. In our faith walk. James says, and I end with this, faith without works is dead. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, he said, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is, this is apple season, you know? I love it this time of year. You say, Mark, it's not like October. It's like August right now. Okay, you understand that. They're just messing with us. No, it is August. And I love it because this is the time when you think about hot cider and, you know... Those donuts that they make and you go pick apples and all those kinds of things. It's sort of that time of year. And I thought about the apple tree. And I thought this. It's not the leaf and apple that makes the tree alive. It's not the leaf and the apple that makes the tree alive. It's that the tree is alive and that produces the leaves and the apple. It's our faith that produces those works in our lives. And I think some of you are trying to earn that. You're trying to somehow jumpstart your love for God by doing good deeds to others. About trying to make sure that you don't miss a morning devotion or making sure that you're here every Sunday morning at some point in your day that you have a worship experience because somehow you're trying to think that, hey, it is the apple and the leaf that makes the tree alive. And what you've forgotten is this, that it's the tree. That the tree is alive and in that produces the fruit in your life. You see, James gets to the very heart of the way we live. Can I tell you this morning that I love Reba, my wife? I do. I just have to say that to you. You say, Mark, what does that have to do with anything? It does. In just a moment, I'll tell you. I love her. I always refer to her as Reba, my wife, because she was Reba before I ever married her, and I always wanted to be that because that's who I fell in love with. 
So she's just not Mark's wife, but she's Reba, my wife. We've been married 39 years. 39, 39 wonderful, blissful years. And because I love her, it's that love that drives that discipline in my life and our relationship. And I, I thought about how to explain this to you, and this is the only way I know how to explain it to you. It's that love for her that drives that discipline in, my, in our relationship. It is. So I'm disciplined in my life to do certain things for her around the house. Now, I'm not that wonderful like husband that wears the Superman cape, so don't look at me like that. That's not who I am. And she will tell you really, really fast that that is not who I am, okay? I'm not. But there are things that I love to do for her. One is this, and these are small things. There's a big list, but I just chose a couple. One is this. I love to make coffee in the morning before she ever wakes up. So when she asks me, when she gets out of the bed, is there coffee? I always say, oh, yeah, it's made and it's ready to go. I just like to do that. I like to tell her that. I love, while she's in the bathroom getting ready, I love to have the bed made up and all of our nine pillows put back on the bed, okay? Why we have nine pillows, only the Lord Jesus knows, and he will reveal that at his return to me, okay? He will. There are nine of them. I counted them. Yes, I love to do that because I know she likes that. I, I play cards and games, okay, with her. She loves to do that, not always because I love that, because I have grown to love that. I do, yes. Because I know she enjoys that, yes. I risked last week, I risked life and limb to get on the roof, to cut a tree out of the gutter in our top, our top second story of our house, because we had this tree growing inside the gutter. yes. And she told me if I didn't cut it, that she was going to sell the house. But she never said what she would do with me, though. She just said she was going to sell the house. True? Yes. So I risk life and limb to cut that thing out of a second-story gutter. Yes. Because I know that she loves those things, and those things are very important to her. And here's my thought. I'm disciplined about those things. I'm disciplined about those things because I know that she likes them. I'm not doing those things in order to make myself love her. Understand that. I don't do those things in order to make myself love her. It's not like I get up in the morning and, you know, and she's maybe not up yet. And I look over there and I think, man, I'm not feeling Reba today, you know. And I really have a lot of contempt with her, toward her because of the things that went on yesterday between the two of us. So here's my idea. I'm going to make some coffee and, and I'm going to make up the bed and I'm going to clean the whole house. Now, don't get crazy. It's just an example, okay. But I'm going to clean up. I'm going to clean the whole house. yes. And that's going to cause me to love her more. But what I realize is this. In my delight of her, that drives the discipline of my life. It's not the discipline that drives the delight. It's not that at all. And I think that some of you, you're... You're doing things and you are checking off the boxes and you're going through the motions and you're, you're making character adjustments in your life. And I'm glad that you are through the book of James. Yes. But maybe you are doing that because somehow you think that's going to kickstart your relationship with God. That's going to cause you to love him more. And in 
the reality of our relationship with Him, that I delight in Him first. I delight that I am fully forgiven, that I am a recipient of His mercy and grace within my life, that He has shown me grace when I deserve death, and I delight that I am fully forgiven, and I am loved by Him, and He even likes me in those goofy and crazy moments of my life, that He even likes me. And in the delight of that, It drives my obedience toward Him. And out of that kind of faith comes those works where I love Him with all of my heart and all my soul and my mind and my neighbor as myself. So that in light of that, when I don't get it perfect and when I don't get it right and when I mess up, that I find my delight in Him and I rest in that. And I sit in a chair. Where are you in your journey with him this morning? Where are you? Are you trying to work to make yourself love him more? Or maybe you're trying to work to make him love you more. What are you doing? Do you know all the things about God today and you kind of list them off for us like a catalog, but yet you have never simply sat in the chair in your life? Are you living under this almost continual heavy hand of trying to perform before God when what you don't realize is that the performance has already taken place and that performance was His life, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. That you are loved and forgiven this morning. Where are you? So would you bow your heads for a moment with me? I pray today is the day that you sit in the chair. I pray today is a moment that your faith produces works. And that is you love Him with all of your heart and your mind and your soul. And you love today your neighbor as yourself. So Father, in this moment of reflection that you would speak to us, in this moment, Lord, when the Holy Spirit is speaking to us and working in our hearts and our lives, revealing things to us that, we would, that you would open our spiritual eyes, that we would see ourselves for who we are. Because faith without works creates a faith that is deceiving in our lives and it makes us think that we are something that we're not. So God that we would examine our hearts this morning carefully, that we would look into our lives and that you would speak to us powerfully. And today would be the day that we take all the things that we know about you, Lord, and all the things that we've cataloged in our lives, and we would sit in the chair. Thank you, Father. Would you stand with me, please, this morning? Would you take a few moments while they sing? And we have a few minutes left to just reflect on what you have heard this morning from the Scriptures. And that you would sit in the chair
you would trust God and delight in him. And you would leave this place free of the burden of trying to perform for God. Because he has already performed on your behalf. And trust him this morning.